0: episode 36 of Bookum Dano, an old Hawaii Five-O podcast. I am your unusual and vampy host, Kristen Haas, aka Kiki Writes. We are speeding to the end of season three, and with these two episodes, we get a little bit closer. Episode 20, The Gun Runner, and episode 21, Dear Enemy. And for the second episode in the row, I am not recording in the box room, I'm actually recording in my room. Unfortunately, my room is right next to the living room, and even though I have promises of everyone being quiet, they won't be quiet. So, we're hoping that the ambient noise stays to a dull roar. Fingers crossed. So let's get this show on the road. Let's go to Hawaii.
1: They're broken from around the back got out with Mrs. Cunningham through her window. They weren't too quiet about it. Four slugs so far. Pretty crude, desperate
2: for a kidnapping. Could have been hopped up. Yeah. Let's go talk with Mr. Cunningham, huh? My wife was downstairs, alone in the bedroom. Hank and I were up here working. Look, McGarrett, she's all I've got. We didn't have any kids. Has anyone contacted you? No. No ransom note? No phone call? Uh Uh-uh. Mr. Cunningham, if you're holding anything back, it's not going to help your wife. I told you all I know. Is this the rifle you used? Yes. Prototype of the M15. Only this one's better. You were selling these to someone once, Mr. Cunningham. That's right. I'm an arms and munitions dealer. I buy and sell. But within the law, I never do business with any embargoed countries. And I pay for a separate license for each and every case of those that I ship. Well, I'm sure you do. But in this uh, business that you're in, you can make a few enemies, can't you?
0: Season 3, Episode 20, The Gunrunner. Air date February 10th, 1971. Directed by Anton Leder, this is his third of three episodes, and written by James D. Buchanan and Ronald Austin. This is the only episode of Hawaii 5.0 for both of them. While a security guard and his watchdog make their rounds around the house grounds, a couple of legit arms dealers, Ben Cunningham and Hank Merrill, are working late trying to make some deals when Cunningham's wife, Claire, comes in to scold them about working late before going up to bed. In the bedroom, Claire hears the ominous barking of the watchdog before the lights go out. In the dark, a group of men infiltrate the house, knocking down Merrill and kidnapping Claire, leaving a note. Cunningham gives Chase, apparently killing one of them, but they get away with his wife. 5-0 5 makes quick work of the crime scene, assessing that the dead guy might be a foreign national, which will help in identifying him, and Kono finds some slugs from the shootout. Steve and Danny talk to Cunningham and Merrill. Cunningham claims there was no ransom note. As a legitimate arms dealer, Cunningham has enemies. He admits that there's been trouble before, but won't go into details or name names because secrecy is important in this biz, and he doesn't want his reputation ruined. After Steve and Danny leave, Merrill pleads with Cunningham to cooperate with Five O to get Claire back, but Cunningham says he'll handle it. Five O sets a phone tap on the lines outside of the Cunningham property and obtain a picture of Claire to circulate on flyers. Che Fong confirms that Cunningham's gun killed the dead suspect, who happens to be from the island of Arasunda, which is trying to break away from Melanesia and is in need of arms. This kidnapping might be a ploy to get Cunningham to provide the weapons they seek. Steve talks to the consul of Melanesia, who is happy to cooperate. He points 5:0 to a man named Lieutenant Kanjil, who's part of the Separatist Party and is looking to secure arms for an uprising. Kono calls to let Steve know that they found the van used in the kidnapping. It's being fingerprinted, and there's some blood in it. The van is registered to an Arasunda native named Bajano. Upon questioning, Bajano admits that the dead man was his cousin and he loaned him the van without knowing it was for a kidnapping. However, he quickly admits that his cousin put a gun to his head and threatened his family back home. Steve isn't sure that he believes him and asks Danny to do some digging. Steve checks in on the phone tap van. They've monitored calls from the mainland and Holland. It seems that Cunningham owes on some deals and he hasn't paid up yet. Merrill takes a phone call from the kidnappers and passes it off to Cunningham while Five-O listens in. The kidnappers want the guns that are going to the Melanesia government. Cunningham demands to talk to Claire, and they allow it, but only for a second. They tell him to make the arrangements and then hang up, but the call is long enough for Chen Ho to get the trace, and he heads to the location. But instead of the bad guys, they find a payphone splice. Two payphones taped together to obscure the real location of the call. It's a dead end. While Kono obtains some shipping manifests in an attempt to find where the guns are housed, Cunningham finally comes clean about the ransom note, handing it over to Steve. The note says not to contact the police, and that he will be contacted. Steve then plays the recording of the ransom call for Cunningham, letting him know that they were listening in. Steve tells Cunningham to buy 5048 hours so they can track down the kidnappers. Cunningham agrees. After all, he loves his wife very much. Kono calls in. He's found the guns are us. Also, the kidnappers have called in. Cunningham did his best, but could only buy 5-0 36 hours instead of 48. But they're 5-0. They'll make do. Meanwhile, Cunningham tries to stall the deal with the Melanesian consul, but they know his wife's been kidnapped. And, knowing the Aracinda separatist group the way they do, they assure Cunningham that it's too late for Claire. She's probably already dead. And since it's too late for her, they tell him it's in everyone's best interest if he defies Steve and complete their deal. Cunningham agrees and one of the consul's assistants rats him out to Kanjil. Okay, I'm going to be 100% honest here. This episode's kind of boring for me, and I'm not exactly sure why. I think it might be the political element to it. We all know that I don't like big political episodes, because they're, we're dealing with arms being supplied to one country or another. It kind of doesn't really grab my interest. And I mean that this really is, like when I say that I find it boring, it's a me thing. It's not an episode thing because there is a lot in the episode that's actually quite entertaining, but for whatever reason, the way it all comes together, I kind of half-ass watch it whenever I watch it. It does not completely capture my interest like other episodes, but I'm not saying it's a bad episode, just not a me episode, but let's talk about the episode so you can judge whether or not it's a you episode. So we start off at Robin's Nest once again with Cunningham and Merrill. Merrill's on the phone dealing with customers, and from the sounds of it, they're unhappy customers because they have run into some money issues, certain deals fell through, certain arms shipments didn't happen the way they were supposed to, and now they they find themselves up a tree. And they're trying to fix this, and they're trying to get back up on their feet again. And this big deal that they're trying to pull through, if it goes through, will help. And it's very late. Claire comes down, chastises them for working so late, tells Cunningham not to stay up too late. And she goes up to bed. Now, in the opening scene, we saw a security guard with his little German shepherd patrolling Robin's nest. And later, when Claire is up in her bedroom, she hears the dog bark and then whine. And then the lights go out. We know something bad is about to happen and Claire knows something bad is about to happen and she yells for her husband and starts trying to leave the bedroom so she can get down to him. Meanwhile, Meryl and Cunningham are trying to get to Claire and the kidnappers infiltrate. And it's a lot of in the dark confusion, but the kidnappers manage to knock down Meryl and grab Claire and run outside with her. And at some point, somebody drops a ransom note. So as they're carrying Claire out to the van, Cunningham takes the gun that he's been playing with, which is, it looks like an AR 15, but that's not what they call it. It's a different model, but it's a similar style. It's an assault rifle. He takes the one that he's been playing with, he chases after them, and starts firing in the dark in the general vicinity of these kidnappers who happen to be carrying his unconscious wife. Does anyone else feel like this is an ill advised plan? You're shooting at people dressed in black in the dark. And just what, fingers crossed, you don't accidentally hit your wife? I guess he just got caught up in the excitement of the moment. But you would think an arms dealer would be a little bit smarter. But the end still plays out the same way. The kidnappers get away with Claire, and apparently, Cunningham has killed one of them. He's dead on the lawn. Five O shows up in the morning, and they're going over the estate and the crime scene and mention that the security guard and the dog were taken out so they could gain access to the house in order to cut the lights and abscond with Claire. For all intents and purposes, it looks like Cunningham killed the kidnapper. He's dead on the lawn, and he has no identification, but through Chin Ho's deductive reasonings, he believes he's a foreign national, and they'll be able to identify him. Kono finds some slugs from the shootout. Then Steve and Danny go to talk to Cunningham and Merrill. And here's where it gets a little interesting. So this man's wife has been kidnapped. And first of all, he is explaining that he is a legitimate arms dealer, that he operates within the law. He gets proper documentation that he needs for every shipment, all of that. He does not sell to countries on the embargo list. He's strictly legit. But when Steve asks, he says he's, he has enemies, and he was working on a deal with a particular country. But when Steve asks who is this deal with, he won't tell him because secrecy is very important, more important than your wife. He then also says that the kidnappers did not leave a ransom note when we all saw that he did. So when Steve and Danny leave, Meryl pleads with Cunningham to cooperate with 5 and let them help to get Claire back. And Cunningham is adamant that he'll take care of this himself. It's weird because Meryl is played by George Murdoch, and here he is being the voice of reason, and that does not typically happen with characters that he plays, so it's it's a wild trip. When I first watched this episode for the podcast, because I don't remember this episode from watching it originally, probably because I was bored, the entire time I kept thinking that George Murdoch had something to do with this, that that he was behind this in some fashion, that he, he was the plot twist, and... Spoiler alert, he's not, and so that is one wild element about this episode that I can't get over, despite the fact that it does bore me. I love the fact that George Murdoch is the voice of reason. It happens so rarely. Anyway, Five O gets to 5-0-ing, and they suspect that Cunningham is not going to be cooperative, so they get a court order so they can tap his phones, and they do so outside of the property from a van so he doesn't know, and it's very much a great surveillance van vibe. You really do love that for us. So Steve has them going through the motions. He has them obtain a picture of Claire so they can circulate flyers so people can be on the lookout for her. Che Fong is at works on the ballistics and he confirms that Cunningham's gun killed the dead suspect and they come up with an identity for him. He happens to be a native from the island of Erasunda, which is trying to break away from Melanesia. These are all Pacific Islands. Sunda because they're trying to break away, the Separatist movement is in need of arms. So they feel like the kidnapping might be a ploy for Cunningham to provide the weapons that they seek. So it's looking very much so like a straightforward kidnapping. The main complication here is that Cunningham is not being entirely honest, and it looks like it's in part because he's trying to protect his business. So when they figure out who the the dead guy is, they go talk to the consul of Melanesia. And he is incredibly happy to cooperate because these Arasunda separatists are a real pain in his ass. So he's happy to give them up the name of Lieutenant Kanjil, who is kind of the leader, one of the leaders of the separatist party. And he is looking to secure arms for this uprising. And that's kind of an interesting twist to what we've seen previously when we're dealing with uh, other countries is that the ambassadors or consuls or whatever tend to be very reluctant to help and here we have this guy who's just like absolutely here is this dude go get him and you'll be helping us out so the whole time that Steve's in the office talking to him there is several other people in the office with him including an assistant who kind of is out in the interior room because he comes in and lets them know that Steve has a phone call, so but he's around, so keep that in mind. Steve takes a phone call from Kono. Kono's found the van that the kidnappers used, and the reason why he found the van that the kidnappers used is because the transmission crapped out on it, and I don't know why, but I find that incredibly amusing. So forensics is going over the van. They're looking for fingerprints, and they do find blood in the van, and they kind of assume that to be Claire Cunningham's blood, which, when you assume so they track down the owner of the van because the van happens to be registered to an Arisunda native named Bajano. I am probably mispronouncing his name. I can't remember how it's pronounced. But anyway, they bring Bajano in.
2: This is a capital crime. We need facts and we need them now.
3: What happened? They came to my shop. One of them was my cousin. I hadn't seen him in Ten years. They were all from from my home island, Arasunda. The rest of them stayed outside. Only my cousin came in. They wanted to use my van. And you loaned them your van? Yes.
2: I'd call that a pretty strong sense of
3: family. But... You don't understand, Mr. McGarrett. I didn't know what they wanted it for... at first. All my cousin talked about was politics. I didn't want to be involved. I'm not political, Mr. McGarrett. I've been here in Hawaii ten years. I like it here. Politics. That's the curse of countries like mine. Don't you see?
2: I don't see why you loaned him your truck. That makes you an accessory.
3: But my cousin put a gun to my head. He said if I tried to contact the police, not only would I be killed, but... Mr. McGarrett, some of my family are still on Arasunda. He said they would be considered the family of a traitor.
0: And he eventually admits that the dead man is his cousin who asked to borrow the van. And Steve points out that he. Could have still reported it, but he didn't, and now a woman is missing, and his cousin is dead. Not that we care too much about the cousin, because at this point, he looks to be a shitty relative. Steve isn't entirely convinced that Bajano was completely innocent, and so he has Danny do a little digging on Bajano. Meanwhile, he checks in with the phone tap fan and finds out that Cunningham and Merrill were having difficulties in their arms business, particularly from the mainland and Holland, of all places. And so they know that there's some financial difficulties here. Steve just happens to be in the van when they get the ransom call, which Merrill initially takes and then passes off to Cunningham. The kidnappers' demands are what they expected. They want the weapons that are meant for Melanesia. They want that for the separatist movement. Cunningham relents. He then asks to speak to his wife for proof of life, which they allow. He, she's only on the phone for like a second, but we know that Claire is alive. This whole time... Chin is tracing this call and the footage of that trace comes from a different episode. I want to say it's from The Ransom, but don't quote me. But it's from The Tracing, ep- but still the the tracing footage is from a different episode, from an earlier episode. So Chin gets a trace on this call. Cunningham at least does the right thing and keeps the kidnappers on the line long enough for them to get a trace even though he doesn't realize that the phone call is being recorded. Chin gets the address. He goes to where the location is. And it is the most brilliant thing I have ever seen in my life. It is the 1970 version of a burner phone because it's two pay phones. Now, if you're young, Google what a payphone looks like. I'll actually have this picture up on my blog so you can look at it so you can get the logistics of this because some people of a certain age aren't going to know exactly how this is going to work out because they're not familiar with payphones. Those of us who are old We'll understand. So there were two payphones next to each other. They took the receivers of the payphones, taped them together, as you do. So the call was being conducted through those payphones. So the call to Cunningham's estate was made from one phone then they taped it to the other payphone receiver where they had called the location where Claire was being held. So when they did the trace, it went to the one payphone and not completely through to where Claire was being held. Absolutely brilliant. Never in my life would it have occurred to me to do that. Just absolutely mind-blowing. I absolutely love it. And it's... (laughs) So wild that I consider this episode kind of boring, but it has this wonderful, glorious, epic moment in the middle of it. But anyway, the trace is a bust. They still don't know where she's being held. And Steve confronts Cunningham with this phone call because Cunningham, I guess, has been thinking that he's been taking care of this mostly on his own, doesn't realize that they've been listening in, doesn't realize there's been a trace. Steve actually plays that recording of the ransom phone call to him, So we get to watch the life leave his eyes. Then, only then, he consents to cooperating fully.
2: Look, I I guess I should be grateful. Somebody's looking after me. But you heard what they said, McGarrett. Tomorrow noon, or they're going to kill Claire. Now, if it was just money, money, I could get that somewhere. But what am I going to do, McGarrett? What you're not going to do is give them the guns. Buy me some time as much as you can. Now, I have some leads, and I want to run them down. But they won't listen! Then make them! You've negotiated some pretty tough deals in your time, Mr. Cunningham. I need 48 hours. Now, Garrett. Do you think they would kill Claire, even if I gave in? I can't say. I don't know. Most kidnappers keep their victim alive until they get the payoff. You get me those 48 hours, and it will lessen the risk. Okay. I'll give it a try. McGarrett, I promise you, I want to, and I will, cooperate in every way. And whatever you think of me, or the business I'm in, I love my wife very much.
0: And it was in that moment that I knew that something was up. Definitely a me thinks he does protest too much sort of vibe. So we have to do some different investigative works. We have to take a different investigative path here. And we do that with Kono, who has been looking for the weaponry. We know it's on the island. We know it's in Hawaii. He just has to find it. And so he tracks it down through shipping manifests. And he finds the warehouse that they're being stored in. Kono calls in with the information about Guns R Us, And Dano informs Steve that the kidnappers have called back. Cunningham bought them 36 hours. It's the best he could do. Steve says, fine, we'll work with that. We can do this because we're 5-0. Meanwhile, Cunningham goes to the Melanesia console to try to delay that deal. And of course, the consul knows what's up, confronts him with his wife's kidnapping, and Cunningham admits it. And the consul is like, She's probably dead. We know these people. They're enemies. She's probably dead. You should just give us the guns. Straight up. Stone cold. Sorry about your wife. She's probably dead, and if she's not, she will be. Hey, can we have those rifles? Nice. It's like the further we go along in this episode, the only character that has any redeeming qualities is George Murdoch, and it's just weird. Anyway... Cunningham is a weak-ass man because the consul says, I've been authorized by my government to increase the amount of money that we will give you for these weapons if you deliver them on time. And he agrees. He gives gives up his wife and he he gives up the information. He gives up on Steve for this extra money and tells him where the warehouse is. Now here's the thing. Our little consul assistant is actually a rat and he rats him out to conjure so, the Melanesian authorities go to this particular warehouse. Conjil and his associates go to this particular warehouse. Five O goes to this particular warehouse because Kono is, has told them that's where the guns are. So, everybody shows up to this warehouse and now there's a shootout. In all of the shooting, a few minor people are hit, but nobody from Melanesia loses their ass. Nobody from Five O loses their ass. Of course not. But of course, Our main guy, who we think is the kidnapper this whole time, Kanjil, gets hit. He's not going to make it. So Steve has just enough time to ask him where Claire is. And meantime, Cunningham is there, and he's losing his mind, wanting to know where his wife is, and is she dead? Did you kill her? All of this very melodramatic stuff. And Kanjil says, what woman? We didn't kidnap anybody, and then dies. And so here is the first of many twists. Kanjil's not our kidnapper. So who orchestrated this? Our next swerve comes after the warehouse shootout in which the blood typing from the van proves that the blood in the van is not Claire's. The blood in the van actually came from their dead guy found on the lawn. But the thing is, is that his blood shouldn't have been in the van. He never made it to the van. He was found dead on the lawn. And Che Funk says, well, that means that he was wounded when he was in the van. But why would you bring a wounded man to a kidnapping? You wouldn't. Steve realizes this guy was probably already dead. They brought a dead man to the kidnapping and left him on the lawn. Pieces are rapidly sliding together and we have the final swerve courtesy sort of of George Murdoch who admits to the extreme financial dire straits that they're in and that only Cunningham had a gun that night. He couldn't be of much use. And then we find out that Bajano has no living relatives on Arasunda, so it's all coming together in Steve's mind. But Jono is the one who is responsible for Claire's kidnapping. He was totally involved and a willing participant. But the mastermind is Cunningham himself. So this whole thing has come together. And now Fivo has to figure out where it's all coming together. So they can at least get some justice. But the thing is, this might have been Cunningham's plan. But when you lie in a pit of vipers you tend to get bit. You know what doesn't bite? This guest cast. Let's take a closer look at them. Ben Cunningham was played by Paul Burke. This is his first of two episodes. He was Neil McVane on Dynasty, Nicholas Broderick on Hot Shots, Cece Capwell on Santa Barbara, Colonel Joe Gallagher on 12 O'Clock High, Detective Adam Flinton on The Naked City, Robertson on Five Fingers, Jeff Kittridge on *Harbor Master*, and Dr. Noah McCann on Noah's Ark, which was a 1956 series. He also turned up in episodes of Hawaiian Eye, Dr. Kildare, Thriller, The New Perry Mason, Ironside, Mannix, Starsky and Hutch, Charlie's Angels, Trapper John M.D., The Love Boat, Fantasy Island, T.J. Hooker, Murder, She Wrote, Magnum P.I., Cagney, Lacey, and Columbo. He appeared in the movies Psychic Killer, Once You Kiss a Stranger, Valley of the Dolls, The Disembodied, and Francis in the Navy. And he appeared in the TV movies Crowhaven Farm, Little Ladies of the Night, Beach Patrol, Killing at Hell's Gate, and The Red Light Sting. Claire Cunningham was played by Marion McCargo. She was Harriet Roberts on Falcon Crest. She also appeared in episodes of Dr. Kildare, Perry Mason, The Man from U.N.C.L.E., to The Bottom of the Sea, Laredo, The Virginian, Gomer Pyle, Mannix Hogan's Heroes, and Search. And she appeared in the movies Falling in Love Again, Doctor's Wives, and The Undefeated. And she was in the TV movie The Best Years. As I said, Hank Merrill was played by George Murdoch. He has 202 credits going back to 1961. He was Captain Krupnick on No Time for Sergeants. Fred Devin on It Takes a Thief, Kavanaugh on Banachek, Dr. Salak on Battlestar Galactica, Lieutenant Ben Scanlan on Barney Miller, and Laszlo Gaboff on What a Country... He also appeared in episodes of Twilight Zone, 77 Sunset Strip, The Wild Wild West, Tarzan, The Virginian, The Bold Ones, The Lawyers, Bonanza, Mod Squad, *Long Street*, Adam 12, Search, Mannix, The New Perry Mason, Ironside, Gudsmoke, Smoke, Little House on the Prairie, Fish, The Rockford Files, Lucan, Dukes of Hazard*, Trapper John M.D., Knight Rider, and Team Knight Rider, Murder, She Wrote, Dragnet 89, Star Trek The Next Generation, L.A. Law, Seinfeld, The Nanny, Chicago Hope, ER, X-Files, Law & Order, The Dead Zone, and CSI. He appeared in the movies Sade in Russian, Serial Killing for Dummies, Looney Tunes Back in Action, Orange County, The American President, Final Analysis, Star Trek V, Any Which Way You Can, Earthquake, and The Todd Killings. And he was in the TV movies Cry Rape, The Death Squad, Guilty or Innocent, The Sam Shepard Case, In Love with an Older Woman, *Rover vs. Wade, and Apollo 11. The console was played by Arthur Batonitis. He was Sergeant Sam Oliveira on Johnny Midnight. He also appeared in episodes of I Spy, Mr. Lucky, Route 66, Bonanza, The Twilight Zone, Perry Mason, The Rifleman, The Outer Limits, The Andy Griffith Show, The Dick Van Dyke Show, and The New Dick Van Dyke Show, The Man from U.N.C.L.E., Green Hornet, The Wild Wild West, Gomer Pyle, Mod Squad, Mission Impossible, Columbo, The Odd Couple, Blansky's Beauties, Wonder Woman, Galactica 80, Lou Grant, Quincy M.E., Happy Days, and Knight Rider. He was Mr. Kirkland in Police Academy 2 through 6. He also appeared in the movies Brannigan, The Maltese Bippy, Man Trap, The Leech Woman, Cry Tough, Violent Road, and The Unearthly. And he was in the TV movies The Feminist and the Fuzz, What's a Nice Girl Like You, and The Last Hurrah. Bajana was played by Philip Pine. This is his third of three episodes. He was also in Full Fathom 5 and Which Way Did They Go?, Kanjil was played by Dawes Dawson. This is his third of four episodes. He was also in Savage Sunday and The Reunion. The General was played by Danny Camacona. This is his ninth of 33 episodes. The Doc was played by Robert Costa. This is his sixth of 12 episodes. The First Kidnapper was played by Clayton Naluai. This is his second of three episodes. We also saw him in No Blue Skies. The aide was played by Al Watterson, this is his first of two episodes. He also appeared in an episode of the 2010 Hawaii Five-O, as well as Magnum P.I. and Raven. The Clerk was played by Quan Hai Lim, this is his third of 25 episodes. We also saw him in The One with the Gun and The Late John Louisiana. The First Separatist was played by Bo Vanden this is his sixth of 21 episodes. Our writers, James D. Buchanan and Ronald Austin, together, they wrote this one episode of Hawaii Five-O, but they also wrote four episodes of T.H.E. Cat, three episodes of Canon, three episodes of Mission Impossible, four episodes of Chopper One, which I still need to see, and four episodes of Charlie's Angels. They also have writing credits for the movies The Happening from 1967, Midas Run, and Harry in Your Pocket. I don't think that's a porno. And they have writing credits for the TV movies The Return of Frank Cannon, Beach Patrol, The Death Squad, Hijack, Horror at 37,000 Feet, and Paper Man. James T. Buchanan also has writing credits for six episodes of Jigsaw John and the movie Brenda Star and the TV movie Curaçao. And Ronald Austin also has writing credits for one episode of Matlock. And that is The Gunrunners. Like I said, this episode kind of bores me. I sort of like half-ass it when I watch it. Again, I think it's probably the bigger political thing that kind of dulls it for me. And outside of the really shiny moments of George Murdoch, because I love him in anything, and the payphone splice, it really doesn't grab my attention. I don't think it's a bad episode. I actually think it's a good episode. The swerves at the end are great because you have the little hints throughout the episode that perhaps this isn't a straightforward kidnapping. Perhaps this isn't Cunningham just doing things on his own to protect his business, or he doesn't want police interference because he fears for the life of his wife. You have those plans. So when the swerves come, they're not necessarily out of the blue, but they're still unanticipated enough that they really kind of take the episode into a new direction. So not necessarily one for me, but it could be one for you, so you should give it a watch.
1: Mind if I think this? I'm going to hug you.
2: <laughs> Anna, Jay, what have we got?
3: Cotton fragments from his pants. Came off a nail on that sixth step there. Another splinter with blood stains, type AB. Same as Tobias. Looks like he uh, tripped on that
2: rotten third step. Landed about here. His head could have slipped over the edge into the water. How convenient. Death by immersion, Steve. Accidental, is that what you're saying? And over every inch, not a sign of anything else. I don't know, maybe I'm reaching for it. This could have been tampered with and put back together again. It's possible, Steve, but uh, the steps are rotted, dried out by the salt, air, and water. Custom yourself. Yeah. from HPD, uh, wallet, a few bills, mostly Australian, Dress book and a wristwatch. He wasn't robbed. No hotel or motel uh, receipt or key? Well, a guy comes off a ship, he's got to have some kind of luggage. So what would a man be doing, wandering around down here in the dead of night?
0: Episode 21, Dear Enemy, air date February 17th, 1971, directed by Murray Golden. This is his second of two episodes and written by Jackson Gillis. This is his only episode of Hawaii 5 Ray Tobias just got off a boat from Australia, and everybody's going to hear about it. He makes a call on a payphone arranging to meet with someone at 11 that night, and then he tells the landlady at the motel and the bartender at the bar that he's about to come into a lot of money. He swears his luck is going to change with his new deal, and signs his tab instead of paying it before he leaves to go to his meeting on the docks. Unfortunately for Tobias, his luck is still shit. One of the stairs on the pier breaks, sending him tumbling to the dock where someone holds his head over the edge and drowns him. On the scene, it looks like an unfortunate accident. Tobias was a little loaded, took a header, knocked himself cold, and sadly drowned. He wasn't robbed, and the currency he has on him is Australian. Steve is still suspicious. Why was Tobias on the pier in the middle of the night? Who was he meeting? Senator Amos Bolin apparently campaigned on being a jerk because that's exactly what he is to Steve in his office. It seems that the newspapers are having a field day with Tobias' death because he was a witness in the highly publicized murder trial involving Fred Whiting, another politician that was a shoe in for the job Bolin wants. This whole thing was over and done with a year ago. Whiting is in jail and his wife Flora is in a hospital in California. Five O reviews the Whiting case in which Fred Whiting was convicted of killing his mistress, Betty. Tobias was manager of the building Betty lived in and testified for all of two minutes at the trial, stating that while he'd seen Whiting and Betty together before, he didn't see them the night of her death. Steve is then informed that lawyer Henry Lockman, once Whiting's political advisor, tax advisor, and business partner, and who's now playing that role for Amos Bolin, wants to arrange a meeting for him and Lockman's client, Flora Whiting. Yes, she's out of the hospital, and she's got a burning desire to see her husband cleared of the murder conviction. And she may have proof. She claims that Tobias sent her a letter stating that he had knowledge about the mistress's murder, including some very important papers, and he wanted to discuss it with her. Unfortunately, Flora doesn't know what that information is, nor can she remember where she put the letter in question because she received it while she was in the hospital. When Steve tells her that it's nearly impossible to get a case reopened on hearsay. Flora produces part of a cufflink that she claimed to have found in their beach house. Her husband supposedly lost his cufflink while murdering his mistress, but claimed to have lost it days earlier. This could be proof that he was telling the truth. Steve takes it and asks for the matching cufflink, which Flora says is in the safe deposit box. The bartender recounts his encounter with Tobias, including the time that he left the bar. Meanwhile, Kono reports that Customs says Tobias had one suitcase, which is currently unaccounted for. They're going to have to check all of the motels and rooming houses in Honolulu. Steve talks to Whiting in prison and shows him the cufflink his wife found at the beach house. Whiting says he lost that cufflink a few nights before Betty, the mistress, was killed. He wore those particular cufflinks often because they were his favorite. His wife had them made for him. He recounts his affair with Betty to Steve, saying that she kind of picked him up after accidentally coming into his office looking for someone else. Before Betty was killed, she demanded that he leave his wife for her or she'd go public. Whiting amidst the two of them got physical, but it was mostly Whiting holding Betty off because she had become enraged when he said he had no plans to leave Flora. He told her that he was going to tell Flora himself and left Betty alive. He swears he's being framed. Flora brings in part of Tobias's letter, but it's not much of anything, and Steve has doubts. Dan'l brings in the other part of the cufflink that they found after sweeping the beach house, and it matches. But now there are three cufflinks. So it was a frame. Maybe. Tobias was supposed to meet with someone at the pier, and now it looks like Betty might have been hired to lure Whiting into a scandal to knock him out of the Senate race and out of his political career. Meanwhile, in Tobias' motel room, the landlady gets a nasty welcome when an intruder knocks her cold before taking Tobias' suitcase and leaving. The thief? Henry Lockman. Let me start off by saying that Flora Whiting loves her husband a hell of a lot more than I would love my husband. Because Fred fully admits to having an affair with Betty. Not only that, he explains to Steve that at the time flora had gone to the mainland to visit family she was gone for like a month and that's all it took for him to wander literally he said he was feeling sorry for himself and Betty happened to stumble into his office and boom an affair happened flora is so despondent over her husband's murder conviction for killing his mistress that she has a nervous breakdown and ends up in a hospital when she gets out she is bound to determine to prove that this man is innocent that he didn't kill this woman I would have let his cheating ass rot. I don't care if he's guilty or innocent at this point. He is no longer my concern. I have better things to do with my time than try to clear a man who was so blatantly disrespectful. But that is just me. Of course, Flora is played by Vera Miles. So she pulls that off in a more sympathetic light than I ever could. So this is one of those episodes that you kind of need a scorecard for. You need a program. I I had to watch it a couple of times to fully grasp the cufflinks angle because it's a frame. It is a frame, but it's, it's confusing. It's a bit of a jumble and you have to watch it a couple of times, I think, or, or people that are me have to watch it a couple of times to make sure you get all of the parts so you can see where this is all going. So when the episode starts, we're first introduced to Ray Tobias, who gets off of a ship from Australia. Ray Tobias is played by Dub Taylor. Dub Taylor. He's been in everything. He's absolutely magnificent. Doesn't matter what he's in. He is literally only in this episode for two minutes and he is a highlight because he plays a, kind of a sloppy, drunken con man of sorts. He's not an honest man. That's kind of implied throughout the episode, but he's a bit of a, a wheeler dealer conniver. And the thing is, is that he goes to the bar and he gets loaded, goes to the pier, falls down the step, And we see that someone hits him on the back of the head, knocks him cold, and then pushes his head in the water. So we know he's been killed. But it very much so looks like an accident because those steps are brittle. Danny points that out when Steve is poking around there and says, go ahead and test it. And he actually puts his foot through one of the stairs. But Steve isn't convinced that the the step wasn't rigged because it could have been that way too. He finds it very suspicious that Tobias was obviously on that pier in the middle of the night. Why? That doesn't make sense. He would have had to have been meeting someone, but who? So they retrace Tobias's steps to try to put some of these puzzle pieces together. Because even though there's no signs of a struggle, even though everything kind of points towards an accident, mm Steve Spidey senses tingling. He wants a thorough investigation just to be sure. The problem with that is, is that the press immediately pounced on this because Tobias was a witness in the Whiting case. And Senator Amos Boland there, who is an absolute jackass, wants this taken care of and quieted because it's going to threaten his political career.
2: Look what they're trying to do. Blowing that thing up like a dirty balloon. Trying to link that Tobias character with a trial that was over and done with a year ago. Tobias was the manager of the apartment house where the murdered girl lived. That was about all he could testify to at the trial. He was a totally inconsequential witness. Now, what happened at this so-called drowning? Well, according to HPD, he came in late yesterday afternoon by freighter, did some heavy drinking around the waterfront, then fell down some stairs on a pier. There. You see? Just an accident. And that is yellow journalism. Any excuse to drag out that Whiting scandal, to keep it alive in an election year, I want you to get all the facts on this case. That story has got to be stopped. When I think of poor Fred Whiting out there in the penitentiary and his lovely wife, Flora, still locked up in a hospital somewhere in California, you know, that trial put us all through some terrible agony. We're already on the case, Senator, so I wouldn't worry. And I can appreciate the agonies you've been through, emotional and political.
0: So while they're kind of retracing Tobias' steps to find out where he was that night, they find the bartender, but they don't get back towards the landlady. They don't know where he's staying, but they at least have a time of death, or an approximate time of death, because of when he left the bar. The bar was on the waterfront, not that far from where he ultimately met his demise. Danny also makes a point of saying that Tobias's blood alcohol level was 0.19. But for a career drunk, which it's kind of implied that Tobias was a drinker, you can be functioning at that level if your liver is accustomed. And while Tobias did appear at the pier looking a little wobbly, I wouldn't say that he was three sheets. But anyway, this all spurs Steve to re-examining the Whiting case because Tobias was a witness in that case and he gave two minutes worth of testimony and it was worthless. He doesn't see how Tobias's death would necessarily tie into that because he was so inconsequential inconse- to that particular murder case. And that is where we have the reappearance of Flora with Henry Lachman. So Lachman calls, says Flora wants to have a meeting with Steve. Steve goes over to Flora's apartment. Flora is wearing a very fetching pink nightgown, I guess. I don't know. It's not a house dress. And it's not a regular dress. And I don't think I would be meeting with law enforcement while wearing that dress. But it is what it is. And... She is emphatic that Tobias had contacted her, wrote her a letter, said he had information and important papers regarding her husband's guilt and or innocence.
1: Are you finished? Both of you, may I speak now? After all, I did invite Mr. McGarrett here.
2: Please go ahead, Mrs. Wedding.
1: I received a very important letter from one Mr. Ray Tobias, deceased. Please, calm. Yes, I know, calmly. I mustn't get excited doctor's orders, but I am excited. I have every right to be excited. Mr. Tobias wrote me about my husband.
2: What did he say?
1: He said he could help me get Fred out of prison. Uh, In the past year, I have written so many people, I can't tell you. Uh, Mr. Tobias is one of the few who answered my letter. In his letter, he said, yes, he was coming back to Honolulu. And he added that he thought he could get my husband's entire case reopened.
2: May I see that letter?
1: Well, I had it. I, I must have misplaced it.
2: Misplaced it?
1: Well, yes, I... I received it in the hospital. Things get... Up in
0: there is this insinuation throughout the episode that Flora's not quite in her right mind because of the nervous breakdown, because of that strain. She's not supposed to get excited and because she has kind of fixated on her husband's innocence that that might be causing her to skew her logic a little bit. So she can't find that letter but what she did find was was part of a broken cuff link, and she found that at this beach house that they owned. The beach house has been boarded up since Whiting went to jail and she went to hospital. Nobody's been in there, but she happened to go in and she was looking around and she found part of this broken cuff link. Now, one of the big keys that placed Whiting at the scene of his mistress's murder was they found his cuff link under her body. Flora says that he lost one of those cufflinks and Whiting says that he lost one of those cufflinks. So to find a broken one at the beach house is significant because there was one that was entered into evidence and that's the state's attorney's office. And then they have the matching cufflink, which Flora had been subpoenaed to bring to court to prove that they matched. She has that. It's in a safe deposit box. Now we have this broken cufflink at the beach house. This took me two viewings to get. I'm like, why are there so many cufflinks? I don't even know exactly how cufflinks work, but why are there so many of them? It just, my brain couldn't process it. What this means is that someone specifically had a cufflink made to match this set to plant on Betty's body. That's what all of this means. So that cufflink might be enough to get this case reopened. So now Steve is taking Tobias' death as an opportunity to look into the Whiting case again. And he goes and he talks to Whiting in prison and Whiting explains everything. He identifies the cufflink that Steve got from the state's attorney's office and says, yes, that was mine. I wore them the most often. Flora had them made for me. So they were my favorite. And he admits to the affair. He admits to seeing Betty on the night of her death, but he claims that he didn't kill her.
2: Mr. Whiting, did you ever try to break off the relationship with Betty I <laughs> Wish I could say I had. No, Betty provoked that finally. Provoked it how? By picking a fight with me the moment I walked in. Insisting that I leave Flora, marry her. When he said, no, I wouldn't, I couldn't do that, she became hysterical. She threatened me, said she'd expose our whole relationship. She'd ruin my political. Is that when you hit her? Yes, I hit her once. I shoved her away from me a couple of times. I told her I was going to call Flora on the mainland, make a clean breast of everything, hoping that she'd forgive me. I didn't care about my political career. I just wanted to save my marriage. McGarrett Betty believed me. Before I left that night, something told me that she
0: How sweet of you to consider your wife's feelings now. But anyway, he claims to have left her very much so alive. And again, swears that he's being framed, something he's maintained. So meanwhile, Kono has been trying to track down the hotel that Tobias has been staying in because Kono's gone to customs. They know he entered the country with one suitcase. That suitcase would reasonably hold these important papers that Flora claims that he has. So they need to find this suitcase. They need to find his hotel room. So Kono has been looking into that, but without much luck. Meanwhile, Flora brings in part of Tobias's letter. She's only able to find one page, and that page doesn't have a whole lot to it. And Steve is kind of like, "Eh, this could pertain to anything. It doesn't say definitively, I have information about your husband's innocence. And it just frustrates Flora. Flora is incredibly frustrated by all of this. Danny, at that point, brings in the other part of the cufflink that they found. They went to the beach house, they swept it, and got the other broken piece, which matches the broken piece that Flora found. And she also brings in the one that's from the safe deposit box. So now we have three cufflinks. Bang, bang, bang. There are three cufflinks, which is evidence that he was framed. Somebody specifically had this cufflink made to frame him. That's what it looks like. So now Steve is more inclined to believe that Flora is correct, that someone is framing her husband, which Flora loses her shit about. She's really, really offended that Steve hasn't believed her this whole time and has basically almost been humoring her to a certain extent. But now that there's this evidence, they're going to look even closer into it. The closer examination comes up with two things. One, they start looking into who made these cufflinks and the original person who made them the original proprietor of the jewelry store, is dead. But he had an associate. The store went out of business, and the associate is on his way back to Japan. They managed to intercept him and ask him questions about his designs and things like that. They know he's the one that made them, and he denies anything. He's just like, I don't know. So Steve arranges to have who he thinks might be responsible for the frame come into the office. Because as it turns out, Henry Lockman who we know was a business associate of Fred Whiting and then went into business with Bolin. Who we also know is the person who clocked the landlady and stole Tobias's suitcase, which is how they find Tobias's hotel room, how 50 finally finds it, is thanks to this assault. The landlady, unfortunately, can't give them any information, but at least they know that Tobias must have had something because who would go to all this trouble to steal his suitcase? So we know that he's up to no good. Now 50 is getting inclinations that Lockman is up to no good because they find out that Lockman sent tobias a $3000 check at some point. They also find out that he accepted a phone call from Tobias the day he arrived in Honolulu and did not mention that to 50. And the alibi he gave for the time of Tobias's death puts him at a charity function all night long. However, that charity function occurred within yards of where Tobias was murdered. Even Five O realizes he's looking a little sus. So while they have the jeweler in the office, Steve calls in Lockman. Well, Flora comes with him. They make Flora wait outside and then bring Lockman into the office and it's, quite apparent that Lachman does not recognize the jeweler, and the jeweler doesn't seem to recognize Lockman. And Steve was kind of sure that Lachman was the one that had these cufflinks because he was basing that off of the suspicious behavior from earlier. So he figured there'd be some hint of recognition or the jeweler would turn on him or whatever, and it doesn't happen. So Steve gives the go-ahead to book the jeweler, I think, as being an accessory And as he's being taken out of the office, Flora comes bursting in and she recognizes the jeweler and the jeweler recognizes Flora. Oh, so as it turns out, Steve has been thinking that the cufflink was made just prior to Betty's death, that the specific purpose for this extra cufflink was to frame Whiting. However, with this revelation, it turns out that in the past year, she hasn't exactly been completely recovering from a nervous breakdown. She's also been plotting to get her husband's case reopened. And how she did that was by manufacturing evidence. She contacted the jeweler and had him make the extra cuff link in order to convince Fivo to reopen her husband's case. Understandably, Steve is pissed about this. And Flora is completely unapologetic because she maintains that she lied. Yes, she lied, but she maintains that her husband is innocent. And the thing is, she's not wrong. Also not wrong, and in fact, very, very right, is our guest cast. So let's take a closer look at them. As I said, Flora Whiting was played by Vera Miles. Probably best known for her role as Lila Crane, Marion's sister in Psycho and Psycho 2. But she appeared in episodes of The Twilight Zone, Route 66, The Fugitive, The Outer Limits, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and The Alfred Hitchcock Hour, Wagon Train, My Three Sons, The Man From Uncle*, Mannix, Gunsmoke, The Virginian, Dan August, Bonanza, Cannon, Ironside, *Colombo*, Medical Center, Ellery Queen, Fantasy Island, and Love Boat, Buck Rogers in the 25th Century, Magnum P.I., Little House on the Prairie, Trapper John M.D., Hotel, Simon and Simon, and Murder, She Wrote. She appeared in the movies The Searchers, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, and Hellfighters, all with John Wayne, as well as Separate Lives, The Initiation, Run for the Roses, The Castaway Cowboy, Molly and Lawless John, Kona Coast, Follow Me Boys, Those Callaways, Five Branded Women, A Touch of Larceny, and Wichita. And she was in the TV movies Cannon, the pilot, A Howling in the Woods, Baffled, Live Again, Die Again, The Strange and Deadly Occurrence. Smash Up on Interstate 5, Fire, and I Alone Survived, An International Airport. Henry Lockman was played by Gary Collins. He was David Tarrant on Iron Horse, Lieutenant Rip Riddle on the Wackiest Ship in the Army, George Adamson on Born Free, and Dr. Michael Rhodes on The Sixth Sense. He also turned up in episodes of Perry Mason, Ironside, The Virginian, Dan August, McLeod, Lassie, Love American Style, Thriller, The Six Billion Dollar Man, The Bionic Woman, The Love Boat, Alice, Charlie's Angels, Fantasy Island, Baywatch Nights, Saved by the Bell, The New Class, JAG, and Dead Like Me. He appeared in the movies Watchers 4, Hangar 18, Killer Fish, Airport, and Stranded. And he was in the TV movies Getting Away From It All, Houston We've Got a Problem, and The Night They Took Miss Beautiful. Fred Whiting was played by John Upton. He was Frank on Never Too Young and Tom Jeffords on Broken Arrow. He also was in episodes of Sea Hunt, Perry Mason, Surfside Six, Laramie, Gunsmoke, Flipper, My Three Sons, Wagon Train, Gomer Pile, Time Tunnel, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, The Invaders, Dragnet 67, Family Affair, The Virginian, The Door Stage Show, Adam 12, Ironside, Kung Fu, Harry O, SWAT, The Rockford Files, BJ and the Bear, and Who's the Boss? He appeared in the movies Airport 75, Napoleon and Samantha, Cool Breeze, Jesse James Meets Frankenstein's Daughter, The Devil's Bedroom, Three Came to Kill, Blood and Steel, The Rebels Set, which is a fun Mystery Science Theater 3000 episode, and Escape from Fort Bravo. And he appeared in the TV movies The Astronaut, All My Darling Daughters, The Phantom in Hollywood, and Trouble in High Timber County. Dr. Worderman was played by Robert Gleason. This is his third of five episodes. We also saw him in Which Way Did They Go? and Blind Tiger. Bill Makoto was played by Gary Ava. This is his third of five episodes. We also saw him in 40 Feet High and It Kills and The Guarnarius Caper. Senator Amos Bolin was played by William O'Donnell. This is his only credit. Harry was played by Lippy Espinita. This is his second of 11 episodes. We also saw him in The Guarnarius Caper. And the woman was played by Sue McCollum-Garabin. This is her first of three episodes, and those are her only credits. And as I said, Ray Tobias was played by the wonderful Dub Taylor. He has 261 credits going back to 1938 on IMDb. He was Houston Lamb on Little House on the Prairie, Ed Hewley on Please Don't Eat the Daisies, and Wally Simpson on Casey Jones. He also appeared in episodes of Range Rider, I Love Lucy, Dennis the Menace, Perry Mason, Surfside Six, The Twilight Zone, Hazel, 77 Sunset Strip, My Three Sons, The Virginian, Tammy, Death Valley Days, The Monkees, That Girl, The Wild Wild West, The Andy Griffith Show, Big Valley, Gunsmoke, With His Son, Buck Taylor, The Odd Couple, The Mod Squad, Bonanza, Chopper One, Emergency, McMillan and Wife, Father Murphy, Hardcastle and McCormick, Designing Women, Evening Shade, and Law and Order. He appeared as Cannonball in about 53 of the Wild Bill Saunders movies. He also appeared in the movies No Time for Sergeants, A Hole in the Head, Black Gold, Moon Cussers, Spencer's Mountain, Major Dundee, Bonnie and Clyde, The Shakiest Gun in the West, Death of a Gunfighter, The Wild Bunch, Tick, 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 A Man Called Horse, Support Your Local Gunfighter, The Getaway, Tom Sawyer, Creature from Black Lake, Burnt Offerings, Gator... Doc Howler's Bunch, Moonshine County Express, The Rescuers, 1941, Used Cars, Soggy Bottom USA, and Maverick. And he appeared in the TV movies The Gambler Returns, The Luck of the Draw, The Outlaws, The Dooley Brothers, Brock's Last Case, and Who Killed the Mysterious Mr. Foster. Our writer was Jackson Gillis. He only wrote one episode of Hawaii 5 But he does have writing credits for three episodes of Racket Squad, 16 episodes of I'm the Law, 26 episodes of The Adventures of Spin and Marty, 15 episodes of The Adventures of Superman, 19 episodes of the 1956 Hardy Boys, 11 episodes of Lassie, 31 episodes of Perry Mason, three episodes of Jericho, eight episodes of Tartan, seven episodes of Lost in Space, three episodes of Medical Center, three episodes of Mission Impossible, nine episodes of The Chisholm's, which he was also an executive story consultant, and 11 episodes of Columbo. He also has writing credits for the TV movies Assault on the Wayne, The Man Who Died Twice, Time Travelers, and A Stoning in Fulham County. And that is Dear Enemy. Like I said, it's kind of a confusing episode and it may take you a couple of watches to get it. It needs to come with a program and a flowchart. At least it did for me. But it's actually a pretty good episode. Vera Miles is Vera Miles, so she's absolutely fantastic as this wife trying to clear her philandering husband of the murder of his mistress. And of course, like I said, we have the absolute bright spot that is Dub Taylor. He is always the bright spot in everything. So I wouldn't exactly call this episode fun, but it's definitely got a lot of layers to it. And kind of also highlights how Steve does have that second sense when it comes to crime. And that neat things like, oh, this is definitely an accidental death, never settles quite well with him. And we have the unusual scenario in which a fresh murder leads to the reopening of a closed case to allow Five O to reevaluate that. So that's an interesting angle to take. And while there are some political implications with this case because we are dealing with people in political offices and with political aspirations and it's kind of implied that the entire affair was orchestrated to cause Whiting to have a scandal to bring him down politically, it's not a main uh, overriding factor of the episode. And it's actually a very quiet episode action-wise but definitely very engaging because you have to pay attention if you're going to understand what's going on. It's a little more cerebral. Give it a watch. And that is episode 36 of Bookem Dano. Two episodes that have some political connections with them. The Gunrunners, obviously, a much more internationally political episode due to the fact that we are involving other countries. Dear enemy. Much smaller. We're dealing with local politicians and local political scandal but definitely two different flavors of political episodes. Like I said, The Gunrunners is a little boring to me, and Dear Enemy is a little more engaging and requires a little more thought. But I do think that they're both good episodes, even if I don't particularly care for one over the other. But as I always say, I always encourage you to watch the episodes on your own and form your own opinions. I'm just here rambling on about what I think. And I want to thank you for listening to my rambles. I always appreciate your ears. If you'd like to find me online, you can do that by going to aka KikiWrites.com. It is the home of Bookum Dano. You can also find me at my blog, KikiWritesAbout.com. And if you want to listen to me exalt the wonders of Dub Taylor in real time, you can do that by following me on Twitter at KikiWrites. So make sure your gun deals put you in the black instead of the red. And don't screw just any woman who wanders into your office. Until next time, aloha.